Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a very special Thursday show planned for you today. I'm so excited to be joined by Batya Angar Sargan. Welcome, Batya. Thank you. We're going to have a good time, Brianna. I, I love it. I love it when it's this pairing. It's a fun little switch it, switch up, switcheroo. Well, the ladies will show Robbie how it's done. <laughs> Batya, start us <laughs> off. What's up first today? So we've got some breaking news this morning. Poland is going to be sending MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine, marking the first NATO country to comply with President Volodymyr Zelensky's persistent request for the aircraft. This comes just after officials released footage of Russia's attack on a U.S. surveillance drone earlier this week. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin confirmed the U.S. will continue to fly aircraft over international waters in the Black Sea. Here at home, pundits from all sides of the aisle are hitting out at Florida's Ron DeSantis after he referred to the conflict as a territorial dispute. The Washington Post reports that a civil war has erupted in the GOP over the question of whether to support Ukraine, quote, as long as it takes. One political science professor told the Post, quote, being more hawkish wasn't necessarily a real political winner in 2012. And by the time that Trump came around in 2016, he saw an opening with key parts of that Republican base that are done with the Bush wars and this idea of remaking large parts of the world in America's image. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris had her own take on DeSantis's stake, stance on Ukraine during a late night appearance last night. Let's take a watch. What do you make of um, someone like Governor DeSantis who, while there is a strain of isolationism all throughout American history, yeah. is saying that this is not in America's strategic interest yeah. to side with the Ukrainians and offer them the material aid they need to defend themselves against an invading power. So, as vice president, I have now met with over 100 world leaders. Presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, and kings. And when you have had the experience of meeting and, and understanding the significance, again, of international rules and norms and the importance of the United States of America standing firm and clear about the significance of sovereignty and territorial integrity, the significance of standing firm against any nation that would try to take by force another nation. If you really understand the issues you probably would not make statements like that. All right. So there's, I think, two layers to this. There's kind of the effective Kamala Harris critique that I'm sure she's going to get about how she frames it, the question in her general demeanor. But to get to the substance of the thing first, what do you, what do you make of that kind of an answer? Um, I don't make much of it. I mean, her, her it, it, what she was effectively saying is, you know, if you are not as important as I am, if you have not had these relationships and introductions and meetings with all of these heads of states, you are not entitled to your opinion about what your taxpayer dollars should be doing, right? She thinks she's attacking Ron DeSantis. What she's actually doing is attacking the millions and millions of Americans who are wondering, why are we so obsessed with what's happening in that country and that country's borders? And we don't care about what's happening here. And there are people here who are struggling who could definitely use 100 million 
million dollars, you know, for, for, you know, pick your pet cause. Is it paying teachers more? Is it paying nurses more? Is it infrastructure, right? Is it the border? Mm -hmm. Whatever your issue is, is it better training for police? Is it more social workers to work with police? Whatever your issue is, we have extreme issues in this country. You know, fighting fentanyl, what could be more important, right? And instead, we're sending all this money out there. So this is the line the Democrats are taking. They're acting like these Republicans are leading their base in this direction away from funding Ukraine, when the truth is the opposite. These Republican politicians, including the two front runners for the presidential ticket in 2024, who have said, you know, they're not into this anymore, they are following what they're seeing in the polls. And I think that those polls reflect not just Republican voters, but a lot of Democratic voters as well, including especially working class Americans. Yeah, I mean, Colbert really uh, teed up that question in a way that let there only be one real answer uh, from right. Kamala's perspective, right? You know, he really yeah. framed it with an expectation that she was going to give a, a, a statement that's supportive of, of Ukraine and unlimited aid to Ukraine, I should say. I think most people are supportive of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. But let's talk specifically about what most the most recent polls say, because I think you're, you're right about her kind of missing what the temperature is in the country more broadly, perhaps because she's been spending so much time with world leaders and kings and queens and whatnot <laughs> and not speaking to the general public. Now, this is an Associated Press uh, 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 Nork Center for Public Affairs research poll that's out from just last month. 48% say they favor the U.S. spending, uh, providing weapons to Ukraine. That's less than half support providing weapons, with 29% opposed and 22% saying that they're neither in favor nor opposed. Uh, in May of last year, just after the war started, 60 percent of U.S. adults said they were in favor of sending Ukraine weapons. So that's a pretty significant dip. But it still is about half the country who do support sending weapons, potentially even significant weapons like uh, these airplanes that have been requested. So, you know, I, I think that it is right when you say that there is a, a significant amount of Americans who are against this, but is Kamala Harris and the Biden administration right to say that there's still a strong base of support for their behavior, and that ultimately, in the interest of protecting, let's say, Ukrainian sovereignty, that that's a decent argument that can still be sold to Americans? Well, 100 percent. The question is which Americans, right? We know that elites of both parties are, you know, whole hog in on this war, right? So yes, there's definitely a lot of people, you know, very rich Republicans, as well as, you know, elite Democrats who are very, very supportive of unlimited aid to Ukraine. Again, like so many issues, this breaks down along class lines. Can you afford to say, look, I'm happy to keep supporting this. I don't have enough pressing needs here to say that my needs are more important than their needs, right? So I, I, I my question to you would be this, Brianna, let's say you're um, a, a liberal, a leftist, somebody whose number one issue is no more foreign wars, no more you know, entanglements, right? No more neoliberalism, no more export, neoconservatism, no more exporting our values, no more American exceptionalism. Let's say you're a voter and that's your number one issue, right? The way it was for many Democratic voters for, for many, many, many decades, right? Um, wouldn't you tell them that they ha would have a better shot voting for a Republican in 2024 than a Democrat, than, than President Biden? Um, I wouldn't, because the Republican Party is very divided on this issue as well, and the mm -hmm. neocon segment of the Republican Party is still very much in control. The blob is not partisan. It's very much bipartisan. And as long as you vote for people who are willing to take money from the military-industrial complex, as long as you vote for people who are willing to bend the knee and play party politics in either party, no matter how much sophistry there is in folks' language, I think that you're going to get the same result. I think there's—you uh, see pivots being made by folks like um, uh, Kevin 
Kevin McCarthy trying to toe this line of, uh, of, of bending the knee to the Marjorie Taylor Greene part of the party, of uh, making concessions to them because of the force the vote moment in January, where he has had to um, concede certain language talking points and actual substantive committee positions and the like to that faction of the party. But that was done via force. And the original reason why the Marjorie Taylor Greene section of the party was so frustrated with him was because he was more establishment than the kind of the Trump, more Trump-leaning wing of the party. So you see this, you see a willingness to play ball depending on where the power lies. But the power in Washington is always going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, very much with the blob. So I'd like to see someone who has a longer record of standing outside of that. And even folks like Bernie Sanders, who frankly do have a long record of being oppositional to uh, the intelligence agencies, to the, to, um, uh, the foreign policy, policy blob, have not said anything yeah. different than Joe Biden has with respect yeah. to Ukraine. So no, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in any language that people might be putting out there right now when you see people who have been really walking the walk, bend the knee in this moment um, to this particular conflict. I, I do think that juxtaposition is so important, right? When you take, so so Senator Sanders was asked about funding for Ukraine, I believe it was two weeks ago, right after his book was launched, and he said he, he totally supports what President Biden has been doing. So no mm -hmm. real anti-war pushback there. The failure of the progressive caucus's letter that you covered so well here on Rising, when you take those two elements and you juxtapose it with um, Tucker Carlson's questionnaire that you also covered last week, where the two front runners, you know, former President Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who's widely believed to be about to announce a run, both of them were very, very stark in their commentary saying, like, look, you know, I mean, Ron DeSantis, of course, got into trouble for calling it a territorial dispute, which it absolutely is at this point. You know, maybe it didn't start that way, but it is now because that's that's what's being discussed as, as a way of ending it. You know, the, the, that, that is a very stark juxtaposition of where, you know, the furthest left you can get in terms of the mainstream American political scene, they are supportive of funding this as long as it takes, the way President Biden has promised. And meanwhile, the MAGA wing is at least willing to say, no, no more, not on our watch. This is going to be a major issue and we're happy to upset and offend the establishment wing. We don't need you and we don't need your votes. You know, if, you, if you're if you on board with that vote for the other guy is essentially what DeSantis and Trump are saying. And I think that's pretty powerful. I think it's an appealing message. And I think the Democrats are really mm -hmm. stepping in it for not realizing what that appeal is all about. Do I have confidence that it's actually going to make have material out, you know, differing material outcomes in our foreign policy? I'm afraid not, but I don't I don't hold it against people for whom that's their number one um, uh, criteria at the polls to go ahead and at least go for the party that is willing to acknowledge your concern. I, I completely understand that from a political perspective, and the Democrats should take that for what it is. I look forward to hearing more about your radar coming up next, Fatia. What's on your radar? Well, Fatia, I have what might be a hot take on the word woke. Hear me out. There is no one definition of wokeness. And the conversation that's emerged about whether there is a single definition of wokeness sort of misses the point. Now, of course, I'm alluding to our now viral rising interview with author Bethany Mandel, who co-authored a book about a war the left is allegedly waging on American children. In case you haven't seen the interview, which now has a Washington Post write-up, two Daily Beast write-ups, and a Huffington Post write-up, 
and it, which has been viewed over seven, 7 million times on Twitter. In her interview, Mandel used the term woke repeatedly to describe the nature of this war on children. So in an effort to better understand her specific grievance, I asked her how she defined the word. Here's the now viral clip. Consider themselves very liberal. And probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about traditional... What does that mean to you? Could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that... Um, I. This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. Now, I want to be really clear. I did not intend for this to be a gotcha moment. I asked her to define woke because I wanted to know in good faith. And that's because I know that many people take that word to mean many different things. And I wanted to figure out whether I might agree with her on certain points as I had done earlier in the interview. Alternatively, I wanted to be able to articulate why we differed on other aspects of her argument without devolving into the typical shouting matches that go, woke is bad, no woke is good, oh no, you just don't know what woke really means. Say what you want about me, but I don't exactly have a reputation of being a woke scold. I spent a good part of my career as a leftist journalist critiquing what I believe to be certain overreaches of the left that, in my view, undermine important substantive fights for racial, gender, and economic equality. My very first two viral articles as a journalist were critiques of weaponized identity politics and of cultural appropriation discourse. In those articles, I questioned whether the gender and or race of, or, of politicians like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris were in fact being used to insulate them from legitimate concerns about their records on criminal justice issues or, in Clinton's case, her choice of an anti-choice VP. I highlighted the perversity of Clinton using, dare I say, a kind of wokeness to excuse not regulating the banks more harshly in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Well, breaking up the banks and racism was a line she used to push back against Bernie's call for greater punishment for the bankers that destroyed the economy. And it's perverse for obvious reasons. Black people suffered disproportionately during the housing crisis, as more black wealth was rooted in real estate than was the case for other racial groups. Not only would breaking up the banks literally help black people, but nothing in Hillary's policy agenda was geared toward curing racism anyway. It was a rhetorical deflection that weaponized a sincere investment in traditional wokeness, e.g. racial equality, to do the exact opposite, protect the banks at the expense of people of color and working class people more broadly. In the cultural appropriation article, I questioned whether we should really be mad at folks like Kim Kardashian for wearing black hairstyles like cornrows, when in my view, the more serious concern is longstanding economic inequality that is racially distributed and which punishes black women for wearing the same hairstyles for which white women are celebrated. In other words, is the problem really that a white person did something like open a taco shop or cook Asian food? Or is it that, say, Latinos have more difficulty securing loans to open restaurants than white people and therefore aren't as able to profit from their own traditions as white people are? At any rate, I never described these left overreaches as woke because I, I grew up with the traditional meaning of the word, which was positive. 
Wokeness was defined as an awareness of historical and ongoing prejudice, prejudices, mostly racial prejudices. But that doesn't mean I didn't identify moments where left social ideology, which at that point during the Obama years was ascendant, didn't seem to sometimes jump the shark in a way I worried would ultimately harm the interests of the left. So I came up with new terms, like weaponized identity politics, instead of just complaining about identity, which of course we all have and appreciate to certain degrees. And maybe I should have come up with something like weaponized wokeness, a toxic strategy liberals have been deploying for years, per the Hillary Clinton example. When conservatives complain about woke banks, like SVB, they're half right. It's not that the bank failed because black people worked there. The bank failed because of de deregulation, and I go into more depth about this in yesterday's radar. But it is true that corporations have been using diversity initiatives to insulate themselves from legitimate criticisms about their business practices. Like, for example, not having a risk officer for most of last year. Of course, it's possible to have boards that aren't all white or all straight and be attended to financial risks. But companies are playing a game of three-card Monty, hoping you look over there at the Pride Parade sponsorship so you don't notice their other more unsavory behaviors. Think Israel pinkwashing fighter planes that drop bombs on Arabs of all sexual preferences, or McDonald's introducing paper straws that turn out to be non-recyclable. Being woke, the good kind of woke, is sometimes profitable, at least in the current moment. So companies do want to appear woke, but no, they don't actually want to spend money on creating real economic equality. That, that would eat at their bottom line. So they co-opted wokeness, equality and justice movements, to claim unearned public goodwill. And this is something I criticize regularly, along with a certain kind of sensitivity around speech and language as violence rhetoric that can do too often shut down meaningful conversations that help each other understand each other as a community and form bonds that could help us go after the real enemy, the elites who hope to keep us in line by performing wokeness or anti-wokeness instead of paying fair wages, cleaning up the pollution that leaks into our communities, like what's happening in East Palestine, and sending our kids to war. So when Bethany said she was worried about wokeness affecting on children, I genuinely wanted to know what she meant. Now, it's become clear, as she answered my question, that she might not have been used to answering that kind of question. And I understand why. Most of us are in ideological silos. And when we speak predominantly to people within our own bubbles, we can get away with being kind of imprecise. Everyone in our own audience knows what we mean and can project their own frustrations and their own definitions on these kinds of words. Woke is perfect for exactly that reason. It gives, it gives a, a lot of cultural cachet to a lot of fragmented different ideas about what's wrong in the world. I mean, we all have something that we're mad at in these modern times, and I have even found myself reaching for the word woke as an easy catch-all to describe behavior by liberals that I disagree with. Say, liberals who dismissed Matt Taibbi's reporting on the Twitter files on the basis that he's a, quote, white man, instead of engaging substantively with what they do or do not appreciate about his work. But when pressed for specifics, it became clear, at least from my subjective view, that there wasn't much I agreed with with respect to Mandel's argu argument about the left's war, war on children. The example that she offered when pressed was of a friend's five-year-old child who came home from a birthday party saying she liked girls and that her teacher responded, that's okay. 
You can read the tweet for yourself here on the screen. And there's nothing in that tweet or in the rest of the thread that indicates that the child meant that she liked girls romantically. Kids, of course, often find members of the opposite sex distasteful at that age, saying they have cooties and are gross. And as I said to Bethany on the show, it seems to me that if anyone's sexualizing children, it was her friend who presumed the girl meant that she wanted to have a romantic relationship with other girls. Moreover, that's okay is probably the most neutral way a person can respond to a child in that situation. Would someone prefer a teacher tell a kid that it's wrong to like girls? Is telling a kid it's wrong to like girls not a, a kind of indoctrination that cuts in the opposite direction? See, so much of this discourse ignores that teachers and parents are dealing with really tough choices. Child rearing is deeply personal, but much of a child's life is spent away from parents at school. There are bound to be values gaps between parents and teachers cutting in both directions. My grandfather didn't love the indoctrination of my mom being forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the years after the McCarthy era and the intelligence agency's attacks on black equality movements at the time. Maybe someone else would prefer to pass on some religious teaching that condemns homosexuality, for instance. But I'd argue it's not the school's role to parrot my grandfather's militancy any more than it is for a teacher to project homophobia on a five-year-old who probably, probably just thinks that boys are gross because she's five. Instead of engaging in our communities, trying to find neutral ground, and celebrating teachers like the one in Mandel's example, who managed to give a non-committal, non-sexual, non-judgmental affirmation to a child, some of us are holding folks like that up as literal groomers. Now, I might agree with Mandel that some people engage in hierarchies of oppression or use their historically discriminated against status to bully others, say, in classrooms, contexts, into submitting to their worldview. Of course that happens sometimes. I've seen it. I might agree that it's wrong to lash out at people who make good faith mistakes as they try to wrestle with new social norms, like pronouns and dead names, but who are genuinely trying to do the right thing and be polite and courteous to others. Left-leaning author Sam Adler-Bell, in fact, wrote a really compelling piece in New York Magazine last year, which I covered on my podcast, Bad Faith. In it, he defined the new wokeness, not the old version, but this kind of new sensibility of something going off the rails, as, quote, the invocation of unintuitive and morally burdensome political norms and ideas in a manner which suggests they are self-evident. And I think that that definition is important. I, I agree with that framing in particular so far as it criticizes not traditional wokeness, but the idea that these new norms are supposed to be self-evident when they're not, they're new and that those of us who stumble to adapt to them should be subject to ridicule or, dare I say, cancellation when you err in good faith. Think, for example, the Stanford banned words list that condemned the use of the term grandfathered in. Is that something that most people are aware of and that they should get a, a tongue lashing for continuing to use in conversation? I think most of us agree, no. So the reason why it was important for Sam to define a version of wokeness before he critiqued it is the same reason I urged Bethany to define it. Because it can mean so many things to so many people, a failure to define the word woke serves to divide us and obscure the extent to which most of us agree about some basic things. One, it's good to live in a pluralistic society, but it can be challenging. We want to protect our freedoms without infringing on others. 
And when we butt heads, when we do infringe, we want to treat each other with compassion and understanding. That means Bethany homeschooling her children and having the right to do so. It also means opposing state efforts to ban the rights of other parents to allow their children to access gender-affirming care if they, in consultation with their doctors, believe that's the right course of action. It means trying to respect people when they tell you how they identify, or alternatively, accepting that a decision not to respect other people's identity means you might not be liked very much, and that's okay. You know, if your name is Bob and I insist on calling you Cheryl, I don't get to claim to be canceled when you don't want to be around me or work with me. That's just common decency. My problem with so much of this wokeness discourse, and this was also true of cancel culture discourse and CRT discourse, by the way, is that when we get to specific cases, most of us agree on a lot. Mandel cited a statistic that only 7% of people identify as woke, but in fact, a recent study in The Hill showed that most people view it as a positive term. Most Americans oppose things like book banning, even if you put the word woke in front of books, and that includes books that are banned in the interest of wokeness, like the Raw Dahl stories that are being edited to exclude words like fat or ugly. Liberals agree that that was an overreach. Whoopi Goldberg agreed. So what are we actually arguing about exactly? Look, I don't want to play dumb here. I'm sure there is a sincere disagreement about whether, say, a book affirming the validity of parents who are exotic dancers is appropriate for school-aged children. That was another example that Bethany brought up in our interview. And school boards can decide whether or not they want to keep a book like that in a school library. But advocates like Bethany some, seem to sometimes be arguing that those books shouldn't exist at all, that they should be censored altogether, not even published. But the reality of life is that some exotic dancers have children, some sex workers have children, and those jobs are real jobs that put food on their family's table. And those parents have every right to seek out or even write literature that helps them explain their reality to their children. Look, some parents are obese, some parents smoke, some parents only see their kids once a month, some parents engage in all kinds of behaviors that I might not choose for my hypothetical children. But I think it would be deeply authoritarian and presumptuous of me to tell other parents that they can't access books that help them explain their life and their reality to their children. Wokeness is hard to define for the same reason that what is a woman is a hard question to answer pithily. It's because different people have different definitions of the word. It's that simple. It isn't a gotcha, and it shouldn't be treated as such. But we also should all be able to identify specifically what we're really mad at, so our society doesn't devolve into all of us being mad at each other while the world burns. So, Bhatia, wow. yeah, I, I felt, you know, some kind of way about the pylon. I think that some people really missed the point of an exchange like that, which is to say it's actually difficult to define these words because we all have different things in mind. And I would love us just to be more specific about what we talk about so we don't end up in these interminable debates about what people really mean when they say something. 
Right. So I should start by saying Bethany is a, a dear friend of mine. She obviously knows what the word woke means. She tweeted her definition later in the day, and she was angry about a lot of the most important things, I think, in terms of children, at least throughout the COVID period, one of the few early voices who understood how difficult that was going to be for kids. Um, and anybody laughing at her having that brain freeze obviously does not spend a lot of time going on TV and has not written a book because, honestly, Brianna, like there but for the grace of God go I, right? All of us kind of. I, I, I have been who, there. Who do that a I, lot. Had that. I've had yes. my Exactly. On the internet for sure. <laughs> exactly. So I, what I what I want to do is sort of make the case for why, very briefly, why I think I I think that using the word woke actually might have a benefit that I think you might actually even agree with. Um, you know, first of all, the wokes are obviously the people who from the left who hate a hard time for being so eloquent about the dangers of, you know, so my definition of wokeness, right, superimposing um, a racial binary onto a power binary in a way that suggests that, you know, Don Lemon is a victim and the residents of East Palestine are oppressors, right? You know, you are very eloquent in calling that out. And the people who hate you for doing it, that is the people that, you know, it's. I think it's important to have a, a terminology that, that allows us to critique that but a terminology, crucially, that is available to people who don't have the luxury that we do of sitting around and talking about what to call things all day. You know, I, 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 I'm I working on a book about the working class, which means I talk to a lot of working class Americans every week, a lot of people of color who use the word woke because it came to represent something that bothers them about what their children are being taught in school. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so I think a little bit that there is um, a class component to saying, look, we need to not use this word that has come to stand in for something that we can all agree is happening in a useful way um, to critique it. Um, because, you know, the, the, the we need a word that is accessible, is I guess what I would say. It doesn't have to be woke. But um, to me, giving people who don't have the luxury of sitting around all day and thinking about what to call things a vocabulary to describe something that they are seeing and noticing and is bothering them and upsetting them. And as you point out, from a class point of view, from an economic point of view, is impacting them deeply, right? As it takes over the Democratic Party, as it sidelines more progressive ideas, I think if that, that would be my my case for, for the word. So, so what do you make of that, Brianna? My concern is that, one, woke has not organically had the shift in meaning. It's people like Christopher mm. Rufo who very purposefully changed the mm -hmm. meaning of that word and used words like CRT, introduced new words and concepts like CRT that weren't really commonly known because they understand that they can capitalize on sincerely held, often economically driven concerns and take it from the realm of do something about my economic status to this is actually a cultural problem and then have people in power, have elites that have control, status and money not have to be responsible to the underlying economic concern because they can superficially appear to be going after it by going after something as abstract as wokeism. So I would argue that leaning into those kind of words and help people who are elites and powerful avoid their fundamental responsibilities. It's Hillary Clinton saying, it's, you know, you know I'm going to do wokeness. We're going to do racial identity politics. We're breaking up the banks, uh, cure racism right. instead of breaking up the banks. And on the other right. side, it's Ron DeSantis saying, it's a, woke, it's a woke company. It's woke Disney. There are woke issues going on here. Instead of breaking it down the issues. Is there, are there labor issues going on at Disney? Do the workers there get enough money? Are you erasing the reality? 
reality of low-income workers in Disney World by calling them woke? Does the fact that they might have political beliefs, cultural beliefs that are different from yours, make them fundamentally not your ally in a struggle for good pay and labor protections? And so, I, I mean, I, I got to just push back against that. The problem in East Palestine, Palestine isn't wokeness. It's that there are lobbyists who spend millions of dollars rolling back safety regulations or preventing safety regulations from being in, to in place, which might have prevented a crisis like this happening in the first place. And it's very difficult for me to understand how words like woke and some of these other cultural terms do anything other than get people farther away from having an acknowledgment that they have a class identity and class solidarity to each other that, if they're able to access, can help them actually change the economic reality in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this for the rest of the day, but we certainly have more rising to get to. So we will have more rising right after this. Batia, what's on your radar today? So, Brianna, after a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank left the institution in ruins, the Federal Reserve announced it will make whole the bank's customers, including those whose deposits were larger than $250,000, which should have made them ineligible for the deposit insurance fund. President Biden promised the American people that this was not a bailout because no losses would be borne by taxpayers, a claim the Wall Street Journal assessed as a whopper. But an equally important debate we should be having is not the argument of definition over what to call the Fed's actions, but how to judge them morally, especially given how the Fed has been trying to tame inflation for the past two years. After all, it's a truth universally acknowledged by economist types that by and large, inflation and unemployment have an inverse relationship, they tell us. Open any economic textbook and you'll learn that when unemployment drops and wages rise, so does inflation. Higher unemployment, they tell us, and lower working class wages mean lower inflation. That is explicitly why the Fed has been raising interest rates of late, to cool the economy in the hopes that higher interest rates will lower investment and lead to less hiring, less wage growth for the working class, and even unemployment, and thereby lesser inflation. The stubbornness of the current red-hot jobs market and the incredible wage gains by working Americans have been greeted with dismay by economists who see this as the only way to combat inflation. Of course, inflation hurts the working class most of all, and finding ways to tame it is crucial to a monetary policy that works for working Americans. But there is something deeply jarring about the fact that the Fed's policy of raising interest rates hurts the people whose ability to thrive is most crucial to the stability of our nation, targeting working class wages and first-time homeowners. In other words, throwing a bomb on the pathway to the middle class. A more equitable society, one more finely attuned to the well-being of the working class and the importance of upward mobility, would look for ways to tame inflation that targeted those who could best afford it. A Fed that worked for the middle class and the working class would look for ways to tamper investments that didn't directly make it impossible for people to buy a home, the hallmark of the American dream. A Fed that cared about the bottom wouldn't be hoping to see fewer new jobs posted every month, hoping for less wage growth, hoping for millions of Americans to get laid off. There are ways to tamp inflation that don't involve targeting the working class. As you might recall from Econ 101, inflation is too much demand chasing too few goods. Instead of targeting the demand side, the Biden administration could be targeting the supply side on energy, say, or reshoring manufacturing to target supply chain issues, something Biden has at least been talking about, to his credit. 
Indeed, a more perfect way to get billions of dollars out of the economy fell into the Fed's lap when Silicon Valley Bank failed. Suddenly, a host of millionaire investors and CEOs had their funds dry up, their companies wiped out by an old-fashioned bank run. You couldn't have designed a better way to combat inflation that targeted those at the top if you tried those most likely to rebound, those least at risk of downward mobility. SVB's customers were tech startups, biotech firms, winemakers, and Chinese businesses, the kind of people who raise money from venture capital capitalists for a living, the well-heeled and the well-connected. Unfortunately, they are also exactly the kind of people the Democratic Party caters to these days. Recall that 98% of political contributions from the internet companies went to Democrats in 2020, which is why there was never a chance in hell the Biden administration was going to let these people flounder. Instead, once again, the Biden administration chose what the Wall Street Journal called an income transfer from average Americans to deep-pocketed investors as they always do. This should be a moment of clarity. It is deeply telling that the Fed has been raising interest rates with the explicit hopes that it will cause thousands, if not millions of Americans to stop seeing wage growth and even lose their jobs to cool the economy, while also deciding to put billions back into it, bailing out millionaires. The Fed has been making it impossible for middle-class Americans to buy homes, raising interest rates to slow investment and cool the market. And then when a bunch of millionaires lose their investments and may have to close their companies, the Fed decided to pay them back to stay open. Just as they were asked to bear the brunt of the burden of the COVID lockdowns while elites saw their home prices skyrocket, when it comes to the Democrats' monetary policy, it is middle and working class Americans who are consistently asked to pay for getting inflation under control with unaffordable housing, unemployment, and slower wage growth. Yet when millionaires might lose some of their money, their assets must be protected to safeguard the economy. All the debates about whether you call this a bailout or not, or taxpayer funded or not, or deposits versus investments are less important than that fundamental juxtaposition, which is just rotten to its core and tells you a lot about who the Democrats' real base is. So, Brianna, I'm sure you are with me on this rant. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think it's uh, disgusting and an incredible tell how quickly the government acts to bail out the rich. They did this in the context of the housing crisis. And despite the fact that there was a, a lot of public pressure to at least a lot funds that could be distributed distributed to help bailing uh, to help bail out homeowners, those TARP funds were largely never distributed. Um, and we see this over and over again. And in instances like that, it's particularly galling because you see large percentages of the population who have real electoral power um, being ignored by the political class of both parties. And so the kind of uh, assessment that we live in a democracy and that politicians at the end of the day are beholden to votes is really undermined by the reality that it's clearly not just the votes, it's the money. And when a small groups of people have an extreme amount of money, then that's what really talks. You mentioned that, you know, majority of the people who bank in Silicon Valley and people in California obviously are Democrats and give to the Democratic Party. That's absolutely true. The majority of labor also supports Democrats in this country and supported Joe Biden, but they are easily thrown under the bus by the Democratic
Democratic Party because those dollars don't talk in the same way as the enormous sums that are raised by um, raised from rather Silicon Valley. And this is an issue that regrettably is not a partisan one. We have two corporate parties in the United States of America, and I have no doubt in my mind that if uh, this were to happen under Donald Trump, who of course passed these enormous, the biggest uh, tax cuts for the rich in American history, 85% of every dollar of which went to the top 1% of earners in this country, I shouldn't even call them earners, wealth havers in this country, then the same thing would have happened. So what is there to do? I think that we need to be having a much more robust conversation about getting money out of politics. And that's a conversation that's not going to happen with just support of the left or just support of the right. There was a bipartisan decision to kind of disengage from that conversation during the Obama years, when Obama realized how much money he could raise from places like, yes, Silicon Valley, and gave up on all of the rhetoric he used to say about campaign finance reform. And tying into your radar, started to talk about a lot of, you know, issues related to people's identities instead. Um, so yeah. I, mean, I will say that Barack Obama actually, I think, was savvy to know that he, especially as a black man, should stay away from that stuff. I think that the world kind of forced a lot of that on him, um, mm -hmm. calling him uh, a Muslim, not that that is a slur, but it wasn't true of him, um, you know, saying things about uh, his, his disparaging comments about his wife, people still for lack of a better word, <laughs> misgender Michelle Obama all the time. So he was, I think, forced into a lot of those conversations and, and learned his lesson with the whole um, cop sit-down uh, conversation after the cop that arrested Henry Louis Gates in front of his own house to not try to wade in those waters. But Black Lives Matter as a movement emerged during the Obama tenure, I think, in response to real-life um, hostilities that existed between the police and black communities and real-life killings of black people that had happened. And so there's a certain extent to which I think we shouldn't confuse, you know, talking about identity to distract from real political and economic issues and people who are bringing up real economic issues and personal issues, like being murdered by the cops, because those are concerns that they're facing in, in the reality of life. Could not agree more. And one of the things that has been most heartening to see is how bipartisan that conversation is turning into mm. being. Um, mm. We will have more rising right after this. Five years ago, progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez earned a name for herself after a stunning upset over 10-term Congressman Joe Crowley in New York's 14th congressional district. The outspoken newcomer did not shy away from defying the Democratic establishment, becoming the ringleader of the squad, delivering frequent blows aimed at Trump and, in turn, inviting fierce and frequent criticism from the GOP. But according to some, AOC's fiery spirit seems to have cooled, and it has them wondering whether it's a calculated move or one that she's been pushed toward from people who she irritated when she first got to Capitol Hill. Here to discuss what could be going on is Nathan Robinson, the editor-in-chief at Current Affairs. Thanks so much for joining us, Nathan. Hey, nice to be with you. So I have a feeling I'm going to end up having to defend her with the two of you because uh, I hate a pile on. But, you know, tell us how you see, uh, you know, Congresswoman AOC's uh, uh, progression from when she got into office to, to bring us to the current day. Well, I'm usually a staunch AOC defender. I'm always the, I'm always the one on the on the left who sticks up for AOC. I contributed to a <laughs> book, which is a collection of essays called AOC about AOC. And uh, my <laughs> article was called The Democratic Socialism of AOC. So I, I'm an AOC fan. Um, but this new article in, in Puck that has come out uh, suggests that she has become, a, in their words, a more subdued and party line-towing AOC um, and quotes a lot of sort of anonymous, high-up Democratic officials 
saying that AOC is finally learning that if you want to succeed in Washington, you can't just go around irritating people by criticizing your own party leadership, and that she has learned this lesson well and is now calming down and doing what she ought to do on Capitol Hill, which is dedicate herself to trying to get legislation passed and, and build connections, and uh, that she came in uh, trying to be a, quote, celebrity, um, but now she's getting getting serious. The whole the whole article is is written kind of from the perspective that it's a good thing uh, that uh, to 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 you know make nice with the leaders of your party. And what do you make of that, Nathan? I suspect that you uh, disagree with that framing. Well, it's a good thing in some way. They are right in that if you irritate the leaders of your party, they are quite powerful. They will do things like deny you committee assignments. You will have less of a chance to get amendments to the legislation or get your legislation passed. And they will entice you by saying, if you play ball, uh, you can succeed. Um, they, the article quotes her as being, uh, according to some report, one of the least effective legislators. And maybe she'll rise on that list if she stops publicly criticizing Democrats or does it does it a lot less um, but there is an alternate perspective that says that you know really as an as an outsider you don't want to make nice with the party this is if you listen to Shama Sawant in Seattle what she argues is that this is a dead end. You might get a thing or two. Um, she didn't even run as a Democrat, and she managed to get the $15 minimum wage passed in the Seattle City Council um, by, against a hostile council by building an outside movement that then put pressure on the others in the council, on the Democratic leadership. And so the perspective is don't make, don't make nice with them, make war on them and build a movement that is going to put them under under the kind of pressure that will call, force them to have to agree to your demands not uh, don't just don't just plead with them and maybe they'll toss you some crumbs so I often hear people say things like, okay, well, what do you want from AOC? What do you want from the squad members? There's very few of them. They don't have any real power. Does what we just saw with that small group of insurgent Republicans in January pulling a force-the-vote moment wherein they withheld their votes for McCarthy as speaker until they got certain very meaningful concessions, which they have been kind of exploiting and making the most of for the last month or so. Does that, does that kind of undermine this claim? And what do you make of the fact that the squad not only chose not to do that, but spent the Republicans' force the vote moment making a big show of their solidarity with Hakeem Jeffries, who is someone who has really put a target on their backs ever since they've been in Congress? Well, in the magazine I edit, Current Affairs, we actually ran an excellent article by one of our editors, Brianna Joy Gray, who uh, is an adaptation of an excellent monologue on an excellent program called Rising, um, that made exactly the case that if you look at, and I published it because I agree with it, um, the, the case that when you look at what the Republicans did in the speakership fight, uh, the small group of hard right Republicans said, well, this is a moment where we have some power and well, how are we going to use that power? We've got this vote. We could either give them, give him our vote or withhold our vote. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to withhold our vote until he gives us everything he wants. Uh, we want. And uh, turns out that when you do that, um, they, you know, they pound their little fists, they stamp their little feet. But then eventually, because you have the vote, um, they give you what you want. <laughs> and, and so it does appear to work. And so it does appear that those who are very critical of you and of this, uh, of this strategy the first time around, um, you know, you could criticize, you could debate what the demands that they should have made specifically should have been. 
but it seems like a moment where you have some power and you have a choice as to whether you're going to use it or whether you're going to put quote party unity uh, above it and uh, i think aoc is on the record saying that she partly voted for hakeem jeffries because it showed the democrats were unified and reasonable as compared with those chaotic republicans Right. You know, I think another really interesting juxtaposition is um, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and then um, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, look, say what you will about her. She definitely has her kooky moments. Um, She was the first uh, Republican to come out against funding the war in Ukraine. And she has been beating that drum steadily until now the two front runners for the Republican ticket for president for 2024 are now saying, look, this is this blank blank check has gone on long enough. And it strikes me as such a, a an astonishing juxtaposition with um, Congresswoman AOC, who, um, you know, in, in her moment, her most sort of, you know, um, public moment of late was wearing that tax, the the rich dress to the Met Gala, in which it seems to me like it was the exact opposite. It was sort of a show of defiance when the truth is all of those uh, millionaires at the Met Gala love paying high taxes because it actually reinforces their status and reinforces their position as elites without them having to feel guilty about it, right? And I'm wondering if you, what you make of the juxtaposition between them. Can we, can we see Marjorie Taylor Greene in a favorable light? in this context? Well, there are not many uh, lights that I would see Marjorie Taylor Greene favorably in, <laughs> but I uh, I take the, the point that uh, I agree with in what you are saying is that if you are an outspoken outsider on the party, the party leadership is going to say, oh, well, this person is entirely ineffective. They are marginalizing themselves. They're placing themselves on the on the fringe. They are ensuring that they will never get anything done. Um, but of course, they're going to say that. Um, but as you, in fact, if you look at how it really works and the consequences of being a critic of the party, if you call the party out on behalf of the party's base, Um, They don't like that, obviously. They don't like it when you point out to the voters that the people who are supposed to represent them are not doing the things that the voters want them to do. Uh, But you put pressure on them and they may change their minds. They may or they may be forced to come out and endorse something that they wouldn't have otherwise wanted to endorse. So um, I I think as a strategic matter, it is effective. I've talked to DSA state legislators around the country. I've interviewed them for current affairs. And... I have, you know, found that the ones who are effective say that they are effective in part because they are willing to publicly criticize the party leadership to show Democratic voters that they're not being represented. And then the party leadership goes, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, we'll... Well, and then they sign on to some progressive pieces of legislation because they're scared. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ryan Graham says this a lot, right? He wrote a book called "They've They've Got You Know They've Got Power, We've Got People," and that alignment between Marjorie Taylor Greene and the fact that there are significant there's a significant section of the Republican base that is with her is, I think, where she draws her power, uh, her rhetorical power, also a willingness to say, "I'm I'm happy to be kicked off of committees. I'm willing to be derailed um, as long as I'm still in Congress and have this platform. I'm going to use it for this agenda." and to rally the power of the people. I think where progressives get tripped up is that they say, well, 
I have these incremental goals. Republicans are much more likely to say, well, if government doesn't work, I'm, it's still a win for me. And people on the left are, want, want the government to actually do things for their communities. And so they're willing to compromise more and say, I'm going to get along to go along in order to get these incremental improvements. The problem, it seems from my perspective, is that they are overestimating the value of those incremental improvements in contrast with the bigger things they could do if they took a, a, a bigger risk. And in an article that Ryan recently wrote at The Intercept, I think really demonstrates this, he goes through kind of the political trajectory of the new Gen Z Congress member, Maxwell Frost, and the choices that he's made in radically changing his position, his public statements on Israel-Palestine, going from being someone who was marching at, you know, free Gaza rallies in, I believe, like 2011 or so, uh, to... Uh, making statements that just find a lot of people, just, a lot of people found disconcerting, but which he made in order to pacify DMFI, the uh, APAC PACs, which have spent enormous sums in Democratic primaries against progressives and have been largely successful in keeping progressives with pro-Palestine views out of Congress. And so what do you make of that? Is that a deal deal with the devil that people feel like they have to make, that they have to concede to these various interest groups, whether it's DMFI or other corporate interest groups, in order to get into Congress? And then what does that mean about the viability of a progressive presence in the House in the first place? Well, you saw the same thing with Greg Kazar, who recently got elected from Texas. He was a member of the DSA. And he gave some public statement during the campaign so he wouldn't cut off weapons aid to Israel. This led to him being unendorsed by the DSA locally, who disowned him, but then he got elected and now he's in Congress. And I'm sure he's not going to make much noise against Israel in Congress. Of course, AOC voted for Hakeem Jeffries every time on every ballot, and Hakeem Jeffries is, you know, pretty notorious for being a one of the staunchest supporters of Israel in the, in the Democratic Party. So but people make a calculation, right? It's not totally irrational um, for people like Kazar and AOC to say that the cost of sticking your neck out on Palestine might be your political career, no matter what you believe. It's not not crazy to think that. Um, so they make a decision that they think that they would prefer to be in Congress and give more muted statements than to be out of Congress and speak their mind freely. Uh, this is this is this is the bargain. You have to decide whether you want to make. And and so you know in this in this Pucker article that came out, it's interesting. They they talk about essentially they're saying that AOC. That a lot of people say she's making the rational choice. They say that she has now tried to they use it the, the phrase master the artful log rolling that leads to power. Uh, you know, uh, creating bipartisan goodwill, raising money for others in the party and the DCCC, and uh, managing up to leadership. And uh, that is that is the way that you get the small things that you that you want to get. Yeah, and of course, a lot of progressives have um, changed their minds about AOC as a consequence of those kinds of behaviors. But at the end of the day, is it going to matter? Does does the base of someone like AOC just? transition from the DSAers that got her elected to a more broader national base? And uh, is, it, is it a politically correct decision, even if it's a politically bereft one from the perspective of the people who first put her in office? It's a tough question to answer, and we appreciate you joining us to try to get through it today, Nathan. Yeah. Happy to anytime. All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this.
head of the U.S. Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz, told lawmakers on Wednesday that the Department of Homeland Security does not have operational control of the U.S. southern border, according to Fox News. When asked if the DHS has operational control of the border at a House Homeland Security hearing earlier this week, Ortiz replied, no, sir. Chief Ortiz also said that migration levels were at crisis level in certain areas of the border. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said last year that the Biden administration did have operational control of the border. Homeland Security Chairman Mark Green defined operational control in the U.S. as, quote, the prevention prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States, including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, instruments of terrorism, narcotics and other contraband. So what did you make of this, Brianna? I mean, it, it by that definition, it does seem like a an almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that there has ever been an ability to, or and re, the reality that they've prevented all contraband, drugs, um, immigration over the border. Uh, so I understand there to be some difference between what's happening this year and last year, but it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the scope of it and the cause of it. So is this a consequence of? Um, policies that are going on in other parts of the world? Is this a consequence of American sanction re regimes in countries like Venezuela that have driven immigration levels in the past? Is this a consequence of the ongoing, you know, um, uh, economic crisis as a fallout from COVID that is affecting other countries? Is it a consequence of drug wars that are going on in other countries that, of course, also have some U.S. involvement in tie-in? Is this a consequence of insufficient funding for border patrol officers or uh, people quitting the job because of other kinds of um, job pressures, quality of life issues, et cetera? It's difficult to know without more what can actually be done to address the crisis to the extent that there has been some kind of obviously meaningful change in the status of border security from this year to last. What do you what do you make of it? Well, I think we know what works because it, um, under President Trump, th th this was not an issue that we had. Um, just the 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 just astronomical levels of people crossing the border, people crossing the border and then telling reporters, Biden told us we could come. Biden told us that the border is open, right? I mean, just I've seen, you know, t tens, if not hundreds of videos like that of people just freely saying, you know, the cartels clearly took that message home from the Biden administration, removing all of the very effective Trump era policies, which now, of course, President Biden is considering reinstating everything from um, family detention uh, to remain in Mexico um, to, of course, they fought Title 42. But then when a, ju when, 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 when a judge ordered them to keep it in place, they expanded it. Right. So so the Biden administration knows very well what works, because when they start to feel the political heat to do something, they go right back to President Trump's playbook. Um, and, and I think that's really what, what we're going to start seeing over the next few months. Um, so, you know, and if you talk to Border Patrol officers, I mean, that, that's what they'll tell you as well, that it's a free for all. There's just so many people crossing and the cartels have gotten so good at using people crossing in one location to then, you know, tra traffic in, in, in drugs, traffic in children, traffic in people on, in another location, that it really does feel like there is something significantly different happening at the border now than, than before. There's been a lot of pushback against Joe Biden's plan to reintroduce family separation. It was obviously deeply unpopular, and many people point to it as part of why Donald Trump lost in 2016. Do you think it's politically advantageous for Joe Biden to go back to the policy of separating immigrant families from their children as they cross the border? 
Well, we know from the New York Times reporting recently about children who have crossed the border illegally unaccompanied and then been put to work as slaves um, to the cartels, essentially, to pay off a debt and send money back home, um, that a lot of these children are brought by people who are not family members. Um, uh, caseworkers estimate that of the 250,000 unaccompanied children who have crossed the border over the, since Joe Biden became president, that um, up to two thirds of them are employed full time. So we know that these are not a lot of them are, are crossing either by themselves or um, with people who are claiming to be family members, but who are not family members or people who are family members who are perfectly willing to have their children work as slaves for cartels. So I, I really think that a lot of what's happening at the border right now um, is causing people to rethink how we judged um, a lot of what President Trump did, because, you know, it seemed so cruel at the time. But the unimaginable cruelty that get, getting rid of all of these policies has engendered is astonishing to me anyway, the idea of these kids. I mean, kids working full time in the kinds of jobs that we as a society have deemed unsafe for children decades and decades and decades ago. Um, it's really horrifying. I mean, and we know again, like we know that one third of the women who make that journey admit to being raped, right? So you can imagine, only imagine what the actual number is. Children being sent on birth control to make this journey, it, it, the horror of it all. And we know what worked to to stop it. And we know what happened when President Biden took office and 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 basically encouraged this. So I, I feel very strongly that it's time for a reckoning on this front and, and for a reevaluation. So I completely agree that it's horrible that child labor is a scourge that we were supposed to have left back in, you know, the Dickensian era. And that's why it's so deeply cruel and disturbing that Republican lawmakers across the United States of America have been trying so assiduously to weaken child labor laws and put kids back to work. I did a radar on this a couple of weeks ago um, where, you know, conservatives are defending the idea of sending kids not just to work, framing it as these like summer jobs, but sending them to meatpacking plants and some of the most dangerous working conditions that we have for adults in the United States of America. And it's, it's really curious why there is this been, been this decision across the country to weaken labor laws in this way, particularly I was talking about a series of laws that were being put into place or advocated for by Republican lawmakers in Iowa. But I think that we can all agree, at least here in this conversation, that child labor is a problem. And certainly it's not the case that the majority of people who were separated from their families, the kids that were separated from their families, that, that shocked the conscience of America and led to 60 percent of Americans disapproving of Donald Trump's child separation policy, the, the call of kids in cages, was very influential and realigning people um, against the, the, the Trump administration back in 2020, for better or for worse. So now this is the question. If we can both concede that, obviously, to the extent that kids are not actually with their families, that doesn't qualify as child-family separation, should the, Trump, should the Biden administration readopt the Trump policies of actually separating families from their children at the border, as it seems that Biden is planning to do? Well, so what he's pl actually planning to do, and I could be wrong about this, my own, and also he hasn't yet admitted it, right? This was New York yeah, Times he reporting. But he hasn't admitted it, although there's been a number of high-profile right. Democrats, including right. people who are usually supportive of him, like um, uh, Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro have come yeah. out against preemptively Biden doing um, this, yeah. Right. But so the plan is not family separation, but family detention. So um, the, the law that was in place was that you can't detain families, right? If, if they come with children, they have to be released into the U.S. So, you know, the kids in cages was, first of all, obviously started under President Obama, mm -hmm. but that was about, you know, just children themselves, whether they can be detained. Um, and what, what um, so so it's there, he's not contemplating family separation. He's contemplating family detention, right? It used to be if you come with a child, you can be guaranteed entry. And so he's, he's sort of contemplating family detention. 
question. So we're, we're not quite at the place where we have to ask that answer that question. But I, I, I would, you know, I, I do think that it is time to reevaluate how we spoke about President Trump and immigration, given the just unbelievable cruelty that the, this sort of more, quote unquote, compassionate approach has has engendered. Yeah. Well, is it is it is it that both are cruel? Because people have, I think, Riley also pointed to the fact that, I mean, family, actual family separation has continued under Biden as well. So the, the question to me isn't, it, are we being, were we too, too hard on Trump? It's, are we being too soft on Biden? Because right. if, if Trump era policies are continuing, if, if they were frankly continued even before this moment where we're talking about these specific title for, well, we've been talking about title 42 for a long time, but these uh, family separation policies in particular, if, if much of that has been ongoing under the Biden administration, my concern has been always that Biden simply allows liberals to go back to brunch and ignore the things that they purported to care about <laughs> under Donald Trump. So I do agree that a lot of the crit critiques that were, happened under Donald Trump were made in bad faith by people who didn't really care. But that doesn't really mm -hmm. get to the bottom of the moral issue of whether or not, if you really do care about these things, returning to those kinds of policies, one, work because there are a lot of external factors that are at play. You mentioned um, uh, the idea that more immigrants are coming because Joe Biden says, come, allegedly. Kamala Harris very famously said, do not come. Is that supposed to not have that, this magical talismanic effect on immigrants and their ability or their willingness to take these treks to come to America? That just all strikes me as a, a, a too easy and rather simplistic explanation of what our incredible global trends happening right now and economic crises happening right now that are driving and have always driven immigration. And I worry that responding with increased border cruelty so far under Trump or Biden hasn't resulted in actually diminishing the number of people who immigrate, or more importantly, diminishing the feeling of need for people to leave their own countries where they would obviously much prefer to be. Well, we know the. I mean, the numbers were much lower under Trump, and of course, family separation did immediately um, staunch the flow of people coming with children and unaccompanied minors as well. So it was extremely effective. The question is, you know, are we willing to pay that price? And I think right now a lot of Americans are reconsidering that. We know even Democrats now are, you know, polls are showing that they are appalled at the level of, you know, disorder at the border, um, you know, such that you're even having, you know, um, Border Patrol, the head of Border Patrol admitting that we do not have operational control of the border. I mean, while you're right, it's true. If, if total control is what operational control means, we've probably never had it. I can't recall another person ever admitting before that we've totally lost it. I mean, talk about telegraphing to the cartels that it's, you know, that, that, you know, open borders. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I, I, I don't, it's what's so funny about this border conversation is that historically open borders has been a conservative position. A hundred percent. And right. I, Democrats have never, like, I don't even like Democrats. I don't think that anybody has a, a actual immigration policy, to be honest. People just pick things that seem to signal, I don't like this, so I'm going to do something more draconian. And then there's, there's an arms race for who can throw policies at this, where you see Donald Trump and Joe Biden offering the exact same things. And trends ebb and flow based on other aspects happening globally. And we have had this whole like now 10 minute conversation without addressing what is what a single factor that could be driving edu uh, driving immigration, except for apparently Joe Biden getting on TV, which never happened, saying the borders are open, please come to America. And so that's that's well, what's I, disturbing I to me because I mean, do we do we care about I mean, 
if you talk to immigrants, as, as you mentioned before, they say that they would prefer to be able to earn an income in their own country, where they don't have to learn a new language, where they don't have to uproot their family, where they don't have to go through this horrific trial of walking, you know, and, and experiencing sexual assault and all of these things that you're describing. And, and having that kind of a common sense approach to it, it seems to me clear that there has to be a, a, a significant harm that you are trying to escape in order to undergo that kind of a, well, a, of a journey, I mean, right? I, I, I would be totally happy to say, look, we need to be investing in our neighbors because otherwise our neighbors are going to come here. Just like if the median income in Canada was 20 20 percent higher than it is here, we'd probably all be making a rush on that border as well. I, that makes perfect sense to me. These are human beings. And I actually feel that it is, you know, they are our neighbors. Their problems are our problems. And I'm happy to spend that money, you know, a, as an investment in those nations. Um, I think I stand where Bernie Sanders stood in 2015 when he said that open borders is a Koch brothers proposal. And if you care about a wage floor and you care about the American working class, which everybody should, you have to care about having a strong border. I mean, that that he could not have put it any better. And I keep coming back to that. And and I think about that a lot. I think he was totally right. Yeah, I think my, my concern isn't with that at all. My concern is that there have been these abridgments to these fundamental immigration policies that made America what it was, like a right to asylum. So in, in order, because of the perception of there being a crisis, to say we're suddenly going to get rid of these fundamental rights that say, well, if you are the victim of a persecution or sexual assault or assault because of your gender identity or these kinds of things, your, your religion, you know, something, some one of those kinds of factors, that you are allowed to plead your case and come to America for asylum. That's why we have the Statue of Liberty as, as exactly a beacon that's supposed to be symbolizing that. And so when you see a di diminishment of those kind of policies because people are so afraid of the consequences of immigration, that's my problem. I don't think that anyone is really arguing that whatever support needs to happen at the border needs to happen. The question is whether or not throwing money at the border, putting big shipping crates at the border, as some Republican, uh, Republicans uh, have advocated for and have done, is actually going to address the problem when we're all missing the forest for the trees. And I think you're completely right. Investing, more conversation about investing in not investing in other countries, but also just lifting sanctions that are making life very difficult in other countries could go a Definitely. lot farther, I think, than um, doing things that frankly compromise the integrity of our own country uh, and our own laws that we're very proud of in, in the asylum context and stuff like that. So I think I, I agree with you there 100%. Yeah, well, we yeah. could probably talk about this all day long, but we're gonna have to leave it at that because we have more rising right after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci denounced former Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield's assertion that Fauci excluded him because of his view that COVID came from a lab. The former White House chief medical advisor told News Nation's Andrew Cuomo that Redfield is wrong on every level. Let's watch. You know, it's really sad, Chris, that he's wrong on every single account, but you don't need to take my word for it. You take the word for the people. He's saying that the phone call to discuss the possibility that this might have been engineered, that I was in charge of the phone call and I deliberately excluded him because his, his ideas differed from what he interpreted were mine. Well, first of all, he had no idea what my ideas were because I kept a completely open mind. Secondly, I was not responsible. I didn't include or exclude anybody from the call. Because the people that were responsible for setting up the call were Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust in the UK, Eddie Holmes from, uh, from Australia, and a, and a bunch of other 
very competent evolutionary virologist. So for, for him to say, and it's sad that he's so wrong and, and he's publicly saying that, that I excluded him. Fauci came under fire after multiple U.S. agencies concluded that coronavirus most likely came from a lab. If you recall, Redfield unleashed before a House Select subcommittee investigating the COVID-19 pandemic last week. Let's revisit what he said. Why do you think you were excluded from those calls? I, I, because it was, uh, was told to me that uh, they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. Do you think that the paper does hide the truth? I think it's an inaccurate paper that basically was part of a narrative that they were creating. Remember, this pandemic did not start in January at the seafood market. We now know there was infections all the way back into September. And again, Fauci has uh, vehemently denied Redfield's claims. So, Brianna, what did you make of this kerfuffle over who set up the call and whether Dr. Redfield was excluded? Yeah, I, I don't know that Redfield has given, frankly, uh, enough evidence to say with certainty whether or not uh, Fauci was in charge of the call and if Fauci personally excluded him. I think it's perfectly plausible that he or others would have been excluded from calls or suffered other kind of access or even professional consequences from taking a politically disadvantageous view of the origin of COVID. I think that's Likely, given how much pressure people have felt, I, I felt as a journalist, even discussing the issue over the last uh, three years or so. But I also do think that these kinds of administrative choices, there's it's, there's a certain ease to blaming someone who has a lot of uh, visibility, um, who might actually have the sentiment that you're accusing them of, but who might not actually have been involved in the particular instance that you're you're charging them with now. So, you know, just because Fauci was not the one that put together the call doesn't mean that Redfield sense that he was pushed out in part because of his views on lab leak aren't true. But, you know, without having direct knowledge of it, I mean, this feels like such a thing, silly thing to quibble over, but that's, I guess, where this conversation has landed. What do you make of it? Yeah, well, it reminded me a lot of um, this week on The Bachelor was the Women Tell All episode, um, which is when they get to, like, fight about what happened, you know, in retrospect. And, it, you know, it, there is a little bit of that to it, right? It's a little bit like you kind of can't look away. It's kind of gossipy. It's sort of like, oh, was he excluded from the call, right? You know, but of course, that's not the important question. The important question is how did it happen that we all got bought into this system where we were not allowed to speak, you know, it felt very much to people who are part of the establishment that there are things you're not allowed to say or that you're risking your career saying, right? Of course, you still said them, I still said them, people still said them. But if you said them not in the context of conservative media, you were taking a big, it was a big gamble to say that stuff. And how did that happen? How was that enforced? How was the regime enforced? How are all these things that we now know were not true become, you know, how was that? And and that, that stuff is really important to get to the bottom of, you know, even even when it feels a little bit, you know, who was on the call, who wasn't on call. I agree with you. Like, you know, th that is not the focus. The focus should be on, you know, how did that end up happening? The American people got, you know, hoodwinked in this way. And, you know, I, I still, F Fauci could still convince me that, you know, he had good intentions if he would admit the mistakes, right? I mean, I think that's the problem with him. Mm -hmm. It's like, he won't admit any error, which is, if he said, look, I was doing my best. I lied on this day for this purpose. You know, that that seemed right to me. Now it seems like maybe that was a mistake. We, we, we insisted that schools closed down. I, it felt right at the time. Now I realize in retrospect that was the wrong move. You know, we ignored natural immunity. Now we realize that that was like really important. We funded gain, gain of function research. And <laughs> like now we realize that that's really dangerous and the American people don't want that. Right. If you just admitted that, 
you know, but but it's this constant gaslighting, the inability to admit that there were people who happened to be your political rivals who got it right when you were getting it wrong. Maybe not. They're not better people. They just happen to get it right. And you have to at some point acknowledge and have the humility to say, like, look, these were the mistakes. And how can anyone trust you until you do that? Yeah, it was refreshing to see, of all people, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, make some comments to that end. We covered on the show earlier this week, you know, saying that some of the COVID era policies didn't make a lot of sense, preventing people from going to parks and doing certain kinds of outdoor activity that are frankly low risk and good for people's mental health and, and things like that. And I do agree that part of the issue and why uh, Fauci has become such a lightning rod is that he was both incredibly visible and has been resistant to making a kind of full-throated uh, apology for some, I think, just tactical errors that aren't necessarily even made in bad faith. I think some of them might have been, but some of them were just people trying to figure out things as we went along in the middle of a crisis that felt very exigent, especially before the vaccines came out and people who were healthy were dying with some regularity from, from this thing. But I also think that sometimes this broader conversation about what actually happened, who's legally culpable, um, and, and what kind of preventative measures need to go into effect aren't happening because I don't know. Liberals are so defensive of Fauci at this point because they perceive him as being the victim of unfair attacks and unfair focus, um, makes them unwilling to engage in some of the more important questions about what happened actually, what we were funding, who legally is responsible because of their they're actually having funded these kinds of, um, of these projects. And sometimes I wonder if maybe we focus a little bit less on what Fauci's specific role was and whether or not he set up the call, um, we would be able to get more transparency or, or get closer to figuring out what actually happened in a substantive way. Because Fauci's like not even in it anymore. He's retired. And a it's a little bit it's a little bit exhausting to think that if we topple Fa Fauci, um, we're going to suddenly resolve all the world's um, COVID issues, which seems to me to be very much obviously not the case. That's not me saying I, I want him to be off the hook for whatever it is he is responsible for, but I would I would like it if the conversation broadened out a little bit beyond him, I think. And what's especially interesting is, you know, it would be one thing if it was the people who felt that, you know, take extremist measures, because if you don't take the extremist measures, then, you know, you're going to have all of this loss of life. It's the side that felt that, you know, COVID was less dangerous, right? Um, that is sort of going after him for having put up, you know, for meaning that the, the, the losses they're trying to recoup by going after him, it's not that sort of feeling that like, you know, millions are dead, you know, and what if you, what if you were responsible for it? It's, it's the feeling that like, you know, I also very bad things happened, right? Because of his directives, you know, mental health crisis among children, people who couldn't be with their family members, you know, um, lockdowns, um, 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 you know, school loss, businesses, failures, like these are all really big deals, but it's not the side that, you know, is it. And, and, and I'll just tell you a really interesting story on that front, which is somebody was recently telling me about how uh, they're a very close friend of theirs. Their father was one of the first COVID deaths and mm -hmm. how traumatic that's been for this person that he couldn't, um, he, he couldn't bury him, um, you know, in a religious way. He couldn't sit shiva for him. He couldn't see him. It was like his father was there and his father was gone. And then my, and then the person telling me this story says, so he's very, very angry at conservatives. And I was like, I, I thought he was going to say, so he's very angry at China. You know, like, 
why would you be angry at conservatives? They didn't kill your father. Like what, how, where, I think, I not, so I think if the point, I think I agree with your point, Brianna, which is like, there are people to be angry at and we should spend less time being angry at each other and less time in, and more time in constructive ways of making sure that we don't make the same mistakes, both in terms of, you know, funding research that could end up being dangerous and in terms of destroying businesses and, and children's futures, especially lower income kids. Yeah, I mean, that's a horrible story, you know, and it's worth noting, you know, China didn't kill his father either. And, you know, well, but, yes, obviously, you know, yes, but, but, yes, but, 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 but these words, I mean, he used, yeah. he used the word, I think, directive early with respect to Anthony Fauci. And the thing that he keeps saying is, I was giving advice. States were making up their own rules. I was not a politician. I was not the president. And there's something to that. I, I don't want to minimize yeah. the value of CDC or the weight of CDC advice. But I do think that a lot of people need to look to their local elected leaders and put yeah. some blame there. Because Fauci is able to answer all of those kinds of questions. Like, look, all I did was my best and I gave these advisory opinions, but you can't hold me responsible for whatever law was in your state and wherever that allowed you not to be able to keep the body in a home, sit shiva, do whatever typical burial practices that you wanted to do. And blaming someone who literally cannot be held accountable because they were just giving an advisory opinion, I don't think helps anybody process through, I think, a lot of legitimate anger in a healthy way. But it's a, it's a tough question for sure. And I'm sure we'll keep talking about it here on Rising. We'll have more rising for you right after this. New reporting from The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein revealed at least three of California Governor Gavin Newsom's wine companies are held by Silicon Valley Bank. An SVB bank president sits on the board of California Governor's Charity. This information comes to light after Newsom praised the SVB bailout. Here to break down this reporting with us is The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein. Welcome back. Hey, guys. Good to be with you. Okay. Help us understand the relevance here. You know, Gavin Newsom has become a controversial figure, someone who's been a stand-in for kind of liberal hypocrisy ever since uh, he was shown having this fabulous dinner in the middle of COVID after uh, adv advancing these kind of COVID policies that were rather restrict on the rest of the population. And now he has his association with SVB Bank, which has uh, collapsed and been bailed out, not bailed out uh, in kind of terrific and very quick fashion, which to other people demonstrates how willing the government is to step in and save people who are of the more affluent class as compared to the rest of us. So what, what, what should we take from this apparent kind of conflict of interest between the governor having these wine companies that are held by SVB and the uh, alacrity with which the government seems to have stepped in and bailed out these figures? Well, before becoming uh, governor, Newsom was a um, business owner, a big-time business owner. He owned a bunch of different uh, wineries, more than just the three doing uh, business with this bank. He also owns a liquor store, uh, restaurants, a uh, big presence in the hospitality industry. What's always struck me about him that's kind of funny is he's sort of a mirror image of Trump, not just in terms of being a uh, businessman uh, turned politician, but also um, if you look at the local California press, it has been reported for a number of years now, these conflicts of interest that exist in the form of also his wife owning a uh, foundation that's received $100,000 from uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And so a lot of the same questions that we saw uh, uh, Trump have to face in 2017 when he first came into office, you know, how are you going to distance yourself from these businesses? And in fact, um, Governor Newsom uh, pursued basically the same line. He ended up establishing a blind trust, which quickly came under criticism because the person that runs that blind trust is his uh, sister. And so the mm. question is, uh, you know, is that a meaningfully, <laughs> is that a meaningfully blind trust? It's much, a one I much open trust. Trump. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, the winking, the winking trucks. But much as Trump put his son in charge of um, uh, his businesses uh, with the blind trust that he had. Hmm. Gosh, it's just so you know he doesn't have one, you know, wine company, not two wine companies, but three of his wine companies invested in SVB. It's just such a perfect encapsulation of like the 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 exact caricature of the kind of person getting this bailout. And in fact, the Washington Free Beacon has reported that Newsom not only had these ties to SVB, but directly stepped in to help convince President Biden to bail out the bank last week. Uh, Ken, what is your reaction to this reporting? Yeah, it's hard to read any other way when he put out a public statement saying that uh, uh, Newsom was in close touch with not just the um, Treasury Department, but also uh, the White House r running up to that um, inter intervention on the part of um, tr Treasury and the FDIC. Um, so, you know, it seems pretty clear uh, what happened. And I, I do think that there's a sort of, uh, you know, I quote an economist, Dean Baker, in the story saying there's a class context to all of this because we were just coming out of a, you know, very vigorous debate about uh, student loan debt cancellation um, that ended up getting, you know, overturned, uh, blo blocked in the courts. And now we have a situation where there's, you know, essentially uh, debt cancellation for people that had over the amount insured by the FDIC, the the, the federal um, uh, body that, that makes sure that uh, in the event of a bank run, depositors will be able to get their money back. Um, anyone with over $250,000 in that bank um, is, is, is going to be able to access those funds still, and you look at two hundred fifty thousand dollars. What kind of people are that? Well, these are not your salt of the earth, everyday Americans that have over two hundred fifty thousand dollars in a bank. These are going to be, you know, venture capital uh, kind of groups. I mean, quite literally, this is a bank that attracted venture capitals to it because apparently it offered various kinds of other kind of financial packages and and uh, financial in instruments to people who banked with this bank. So these are not just your average depositor to begin with. Moreover, I think it's important to drill down on this context. We decided as a society that to protect the ordinary American, the the uh, deposits up to $250,000 should be federally insured. No matter what, the government's got your back. If there's a run on the, the bank, your first $250,000 is good. Over that, it's your own risk if you want to keep your money sitting in the bank. And people who are savvy investors, they put $250,000 and sprinkle it among a bunch of banks. We've got a lot of banks here in America. That's an option. You can invest it. You can do other kinds of things. But that's a certain kind of risk assessment that individuals make. Now, when it comes to the student debt context, which you just brought up, I think rightly so, people look at these small amounts that are being canceled, ten dollars to $20,000 max for the poorest students in the country, and they say, one, that's a bridge too far. And two, they say, well, these students made a gamble. They made these decisions. Uh, if it didn't work out for them, if their basket weaving major didn't pan out, then that's on them. But what about the decisions that are being made by these relatively sophisticated financial people like Gavin Newsom, who have made a decision to keep large amounts of money over the insurable amount in banks when they have the opportunities to do otherwise? And why does it seem to be so easy for the government to step in to save their backs while there's so much public conversation and pushback about any kind of um, uh, redistribute, redistribution policy that happens to affect poorer people in this country. I mean, is there any is, is there any rationale here that you think holds water for why it is, is good for the government to have bailed out this population but not, say, homeowners after 2008 or college students now? Well, so the argument is that there's systemic risk. There's risk of contagion, which means that the bank runs can then affect other banks, and then you could have a much bigger uh, systemic situation that, that um, we saw in 2008 and 2009. But you know, in that case, uh, why did the banks get into these kind of businesses to begin with? If you look, and I mentioned this in the story, back in 2018, these same banks 
we're using uh, lobbyists, uh, you know, two of them coming from the Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, to advance their interests and try to undermine um, the Dodd-Frank uh, reform bill that uh, contained within it a number of measures that might have prevented something like this from happening. So, you know, not only is this happening to these banks, these banks orchestrated the kind of conditions that would allow for this to happen and now are being rewarded for it uh, by getting bailed out. And so, you know, you mentioned another, you mentioned being able to put your money in other banks to be able to avoid these kind of things. You can also buy depositors insurance. Mm. That's something that exists. And so we have right. one story being told, you know, these kids are not responsible to have applied for schools that they should have gone to. In the other situation, you have, you know, big systemic um, uh, financial interests doing these things without considering any of the risks, uh, despite having a number of other options. And so you're really rewarding the worst uh, behaviors of these things. And it seems like there's no strings attached to this kind of, uh, let's call it what it is, a bailout. Um, because, you know, I haven't heard any talk about, you know, we're going to we're going to reinstate some of the parts of Dodd-Frank that we repealed. So so the question is, what, are, what is going to happen to make it so that this doesn't take place again, even if you assume that uh, they had to be bailed out to protect from the systemic risk? Yeah, you know, I, I I was one of the people who's sort of against the the uh, student loan um, forgiveness. I felt like it was not fair to working class Americans. But my God, like in this context, to see people pushing for this bailout when they wanted to deny a measly ten thousand dollars to people, you know, it's it's really 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 appalling. And I would say there's even another comparison I would make, which is how the Fed has been raising interest rates consistently right. to fight inflation. My radar is about this, which of course hurts the working class. They want to see wage growth stop. They want to see people get unemployed. They want to see investment stop. And of course, it makes first time um, home buying completely impossible. I mean, in mortgage rates now 6%, 7%, 8%, right? They threw, they're throwing a bomb on the pathway to the middle class, right? That was their idea for how to stop inflation. Meanwhile, suddenly you have all of these businesses that are potentially going to close. Billions of dollars no longer part of the economy because of this run on banks. What better way to cure inflation? But instead, because it's the elites of the Democratic Party, they have to run in and save them and protect them because protecting these millionaires is protecting the economy. I mean, that's I cannot get past the fundamental injustice of that comparison. Yeah, you raise a really important point. So uh, the Fed interest rate hikes had the effect of making bond investments that this uh, bank had engaged in really risky. And so really uh, the driving, I mean, there's the lack of banking regulations on the one hand, and then there's the conduct of the Fed that's driving this and is probably going to cause more of these kinds of things to happen. Um, what's interesting is you look at uh, someone like uh, former Treasury Secretary um, uh, Larry Summers saying we need to make it, unemployment go up, basically saying exactly that. Mm -hmm. And now we have a situation in which, well, here's all these venture capital people that you know could be unemployed because of the decisions they made. What happened to your commitment to <laughs> unemployment going up? It sounds like you only want unemployment to go up among certain classes and not other classes. Yeah, and it's worth noting. It's worth noting that it's not just, unfortunately, it's not just uh, left-leaning Democratic elites. It is across the spectrum. This really is an elite issue. You have people like David Sachs, who are very much loudly calling for this kind of thing. People who have given both to Gavin Newsom and to Republicans, because over and over again, when we look at these kinds of uh, instances, it's that money talks and the politics follow. So we really appreciate you joining us today, Ken, to shed some light on this. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. On Tuesday, Minnesota State Senator Steve Drakowski, a Republican, voted against a bill that would provide free school lunch and breakfast for students in the state. Here are his remarks. Mr. President, 
I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that is hungry. Yet today, I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that says they don't have access to enough food to eat. Now, I should say that hunger is a relative term, Mr. President. You know, I had a cereal bar for breakfast. I guess I'm hungry now. Uh, that, to some, might be the, maybe that's the definition of the bill. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see a definition of hunger in the bill, Mr. President. Um, but I think most reasonable people suggest hunger means you don't have enough to eat in order to, to uh, provide for metabolism and growth. Now, I used this clip at a radar recently. I found it to be really surprising, uh, especially given that we've been in the middle of a very national public conversation about the high price of groceries, how ridiculous the cost of eggs are, how people have been struggling with the, the consequences of inflation in the middle of a pandemic. The idea that that would, of course, also affect people who are already food insecure and really highlight the need for programs like free school lunch and free school breakfast, it seems like a no-brainer. What do you make of this here, Batya? And I believe that the number of child poverty in Minnesota is somewhere around 10%. And the fact mm. that the governor does not know that is horrifying. Uh, <laughs> what could be more important than feeding children? Like, I, I, what if they're not hungry, but their parents are not giving them nutritious food? Like, what could be more important than making sure a child has a full belly before they sit down and open their textbook and learn how to add and read? And... I mean, my God, is there anything more horrific than the idea of a child going hungry? <laughs> I don't know. And Where this, are these people coming from? <laughs> this this casual idea that hunger, as as understood kind of from a public policy perspective, is some subjective silliness, like, oh, I'm, my stomach is growling because I didn't eat my Cliff Bar this morning, <laughs> is, you know, I don't know. It really says a lot, I think, about um, Jaskowski's understanding of what's going on in his own state under his nose. But he's not the only one. Apparently, the topic of free school lunch was brought up to Daily Wire co-founder Ben Shapiro yesterday on the platform's all-access live stream. And here's what he had to say. School lunches are not going to solve the problem of child hunger at any serious level. If, if there is a problem of children actually starving, that is a child endangerment scenario in which CPS needs to be called. Uh, if you're talking about like actual child starvation, the truth is it does not take that much money to feed a child. I know I have three of them. Uh, the, you should be feeding your child before you feed yourself. It's that simple. There's a much deeper problem at work than school lunches if kids are legitimately starving. Is I mean, it, I, I mean, look, okay, so it's complicated. I, I, I like Ben, and I like, but I don't agree with him about economics on most things. But I will say, like the way he, the what he's talking about there, like, yeah, if a child is starving, uh, clearly there's a much deeper problem there. The problem is, is that often. Um, People will separate children from their parents. Um, you know, our, our, our foster care system is deeply flawed and deeply problematic. And often a parent is either ignorant or busy or just poor. And to penalize them in such a way when there's a much easier fix that is much less traumatic, that is like, look, let's decide as a society that this is much more important to us. You know, we know, for example, that obesity now is very much an epidemic among lower income Americans because people don't understand often how to feed their children in a nutritious way. I'm sorry, that's just like, maybe that sounds judgmental. We know that that is true. Like given that that is the case, like what you're gonna take away children from parents who give them McDonald's because they can't afford better or don't know any better? No, that's insane. Let's just say as a society, we're gonna find a way to make sure that those kids get at least two nutritious meals a day. I mean, it seems like very much the lesser of two evils. 
Yeah, I, I gotta say on this one, I recognize that I've lived a very privileged life. And it can be difficult for those of us who have literally never opened the refrigerator and not seen food in it to really appreciate the struggles that so many other Americans have gone through. There are phenomenons like known as like struggle meals or struggle sandwiches that millions of Americans, I say those words, they know exactly what that means. They've had the experience of having you know, a piece of bologna on bread. They've had the experience of, of bulk shopping for ramen. They have, they've had the experience of not being able to afford a carton of eggs at, at any price, even outside of the, the recession. Um, and the idea that someone could kind of scoff at the idea that a, a parent, a working parent, might not be able to afford groceries for their kids because they, with, I'm sorry, a multi-million dollar salary, have never uh, struggled to feed their own three kids. I gotta say, I find it rather distasteful. I don't blame anybody for not having had the experience of poverty, but to have not listened, to, to weigh in on these kinds of issues without having listened to the experiences of people who all too commonly have gone through that is, is dispiriting. I will say I had one eye-opening experience where in a poverty law class I took in law school, we were we took jobs out of a hat, um, kind of numbers of kids out of the hat, so we got randomly assigned this kind of family and life situations, and were tasked with providing rent and food for our families using the social services that were available in Massachusetts where I was living. and. Even in a state that has a lot of good welfare programs, social safety net programs like Massachusetts, it was a very quick wake-up call about how expensive things that most middle-class people don't think twice about really are when you're on a budget, even with the support of the state. And it's not about kids literally starving. Food insecurity is a lot more complicated than that. It's about being able to get nutritious food. It's about getting enough food to enable you to go to work, uh, go to school and not be hungry, not have your stomach growling. It's not that you're literally got your ribs showing on our passing out on your front porch, but it is affecting the ability of our kids to learn and function and grow and be healthy and have appropriate cognitive development. And for that not to be a priority in a country as rich as ours, I think is a, is a real tragedy. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, exactly like you said, it's not always like that they're starving. In fact, there's an obesity epidemic, right? There's a, just if, whatever the problem is, um, this is something that a society, this is, should be one of the first things a society can agree to do um, for children. I, I totally agree. What do you make of what seems to be a growing trend of specifically attacking school lunch programs? You know, it, it seems like an odd one for conservatives to want to, to battle, battle it out on. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 one hopes that they're looking at data and saying, look, most of the kids are coming from, you know, middle class families seem to have, you know, seem to be bringing their own lunches. We're throwing a lot of food away. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I actually am not seeing it that much. I mean, this is one of the first or second times that I've heard of it. Uh, and of course, the question is different if you live, you know, if you're talking about inner city schools, right? If you're talking about schools where there are really high levels of child poverty, and then schools in a place where it's, you know, much lower. Like, you, I, I'm, I'm open to the idea that we could means test this, right? Um, but I didn't hear that governor come out and say, look, we've means tested this, we've looked at the data, and the kids just aren't eating this food, so we don't need it, right? What he said was, I had a cliff bar for breakfast, I never see hungry children, like, that's obviously not the case. Um, so I, I really am not seeing it, like, as, as frequently, but I, I really hope that, 
continues to be the case. Yeah, and I actually don't think it's it's a it's a an urban issue at all. Rural poverty is at 19%. This is a huge issue. I mean, this is this was a conversation that was happening in Minnesota. This is a huge issue in people who are in quite rural locations. And I and I do worry about the kind of public perception of this being free lunch for urban kids coded black mm -hmm. and brown kids as being part of why some Republicans might be willing to take on this issue, at least this one Republican, I shouldn't brought it out, has been willing to take on this issue as something that he actually wants to actively fight against, when in fact, I disproportionately, most kids on school lunch, just like most kids on all anti-poverty yeah. programs in the United States of America, are white. We are a majority white country, and even if black and brown people are disproportionately represented, in fact, the most, most of the children that are going to be hurt by policies like these are white children, for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week on Rising. Sorry to go out on a somewhat of a bleak topic, but it was wonderful being with you today, Batia. Thank you. Thank you, too. Coming up starting Monday is a very big week here at Rising. We'll be back with a new look and a stellar guest lineup, including some big names as well as some of your Rising favorites. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next week.